Back again to the Bad Quaker Show, where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, March 11th, 2013. My name is Ben Stone, and this is podcast number 278. Before we get going today, I have an announcement. I want to uh, tell you about the Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo. This is going to be Saturday, April 27th, 2013, in Exeter, New Hampshire, at the Exeter Town Hall. Now, you got to see this place. If nothing else, uh, put that in Google. Put in Exeter. Uh, put in Exeter, New Hampshire Town Hall. Anyway, put that in Google Maps or Google Earth or whatever you have, and get the satellite uh, picture of that. Or you might even be able to just Google it regularly and and find it as uh, as an image. But the the Exeter Town Hall is one of these great old buildings that you would expect to see, like in 1690 or in 1776 or something. You could you can imagine yourself if you're standing in front of the Exeter Town Hall, you could you could imagine very easily you know um, Benjamin Franklin standing out there having a debate with uh, Thomas Jefferson or something like that. It ha- it has that kind of an a, appearance and appeal to you. But anyway, Saturday, April twenty seventh of this year. Uh, if you can, get to Exeter, New Hampshire, to the Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo. There's going to be workshops, tables, speakers, vendors, and uh, and activities all day long. It's very similar to like a one-day version of the Liberty Forum or maybe even a one-day version of Porkfest. Maybe not quite that, uh, maybe not quite Porkfest, but it's like a one-day version of the Liberty Forum. Uh, it is free. There's no admission cost, so you can just show up. You don't have to get any tickets ahead of time or anything like that. The uh, the future future of freedom foundation is going to have a table there, and uh, Scott McPherson of the uh, FFF policy advisor um, is going to be there at the table. So stop by and say hi to Scott, and tell him you heard about it on the Bad Quaker podcast, and we'll uh, that'll kind of help the Bad Quaker podcast uh, have some uh, you know um, publicity with the Future of Freedom Foundation. Uh, anyway, so stop by the table and say hi to Scott Scott McPherson, and that's once again that's going to be April twenty seventh, two thousand thirteen, in Exeter, New Hampshire, at the Exeter Town Hall. Now, I also want to mention uh, the Decline to State podcast. If you like my podcast, if you're a listener to this podcast, or if you uh, if you're a regular listener over at the Freedom Fiends podcast, and if you kind of attend in the in the to like podcasts in these directions, then you're going to want to get over to the Decline to State podcast. And in today's show notes at BadQuaker.com, I'll put links to Decline to State podcasts. With uh, one of them is with Steve, uh, with Stefan Kinsella, and I'm hoping to get him on the show. I almost had him on the show, but some technical difficulties took place. Maybe I'll tell you about that in a second. Anyway, so I'll put a link uh, on the Bad Quaker uh, page where this uh, where this podcast appears 
to the Decline to State podcast that featured uh, Stefan Kinsella. And there was also a really good one with Jeffrey Tucker. I'll put a link in today's show notes to that one, too. And uh, there was a Decline to State podcast where I appeared there, and you might find that interesting. I'll put a, a link to that on today's uh, uh, podcast notes as well. Just to kind of give you the background story on the Stefan Kinsella thing, uh, my wife and I, during our travels, we have been on the road from December until just a couple days ago. We finally arrived home in Ohio. And so, you know, the podcast has been off and on. We've had um, questionable, at best, uh, internet connections. So we've had a real hard time being able to, you know, actually do the podcast and all the stuff that goes with handling the website and the forum and all those things. So uh, Stefan and I had been talking about uh, doing an interview with him. And then when that whole, you know, that whole Ron Paul uh, intellectual property rights thing blew up all over the Internet. And I thought, well, that's a really good time to talk to Stefan about that because, you know, I mean, that's what he does for a living. IP, he's an IP attorney. So uh, Stefan and I were talking and we were going to set up a uh, an interview, um, but the campsite that we were at had really, really bad uh, internet connection. So I took the, the laptop and I hiked around and, and tried to find a, uh, a web, a uh, campsite that had a, a, a better internet connection. And I, I found one. I found one that had a really good signal. It was really close to a Wi-Fi um, uh, antenna. So I had to hike back and forth up and down this hill, and I carried a, essentially a, a mobile studio. I carried you know, a laptop, uh, all the wiring and, and all the cables, and my mixing board and uh, a microphone and the mic uh, stand and and I had to bring down an umbrella because the sun was so bright I couldn't even read the, um, the the monitor on the laptop and so I got all this stuff set up on a picnic table at this campsite hiking up and down this hill uh, getting it all down there and everything and I got uh, Stefan on on Skype and we had a good connection and all of a sudden it dawned on me that even though my laptop was working, of course it was on battery, the, uh, the campsite itself had no electricity. They had t- the campgrounds had turned off the electricity to that section of the campgrounds uh, because of you know it's seasonal and, and who really needs a, a campground in the middle of uh, February anyway. Well, I did, but anyway. So uh, it totally destroyed the, um, the opportunity to have the interview with Stefan Kinsella. I'm going to try to get a hold of him this week. He's a pretty busy guy, but I'm going to try to get a hold of him and uh, see if maybe I can get him back on the show now that we're home in Ohio with a stable Internet connection and so forth. Uh, and and I'm, I really expect that to be a good show. It's, it won't be as timely since the whole Internet uh, explosion over the Ron Paul thing has kind of calmed down a little bit. But uh, but I think it'll still be really good. Stefan Kinsella is the kind of guy that uh, that will not comprof- compromise on his beliefs simply because other people in the movement are giving him pressure to do so. He he his level of honesty is such that it doesn't matter who the personality is or how much pressure they want to put on him. He's going to stick to his guns. He's going to stick to the moral. Um, the, he's going to take the moral high ground and, uh, you know, throw consequences to the wind because he understands that in the long run, um, more morally consistent behavior is uh, will produce a much better product in the long run than than allowing, you know, allowing yourself to go with the current trends and, and bend with the wind. 
So that's one of the things I really appreciate appreciate about Stefan Kinsella. Now it, it's going to sound like I'm just you know throwing out one website after the other uh, today, but I also want to mention uh, Seth King over at the Daily Anarchist. Now, the reason I'm talking about uh, Seth King is because I'm going to be, during the podcast today, I'm going to be referring to uh, two different articles that appeared over at Daily Anarchist. Uh, Seth was, if you listen to the the um, podcast that I recorded live on the floor of the uh, Liberty Forum just uh, that came out just a couple weeks ago, I bumped into Seth there and was only able to talk to him for a couple of minutes, and there was a lot in background noise and so forth. But that's Seth King. He has the, the website, The Daily Anarchist. And that was, I should mention, too, that that was one of the, when, when BadQuaker.com ver, very first uh, went on the Internet, Seth King was one of the very first uh, websites, well, his, his website, Daily Anarchist, but Seth King was one of the very first people to connect their website to the Bad Quaker website, in a mutual exchange of links so that it, you know, to help Google and other search engines find uh, both websites uh, a little bit easier. So Seth was one of the first people that, that uh, reached out to us like that. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that from Seth. Um, now, the, the article over at the Daily Anarchist that I wanted to talk about was wit- written by my friend uh, David and um, there's actually two articles. They're both written by Davi. One is a little older. I think it's about a year and a half old. But the one I'm talking about mostly today, the t- and I'll put a link in today's show notes uh, also, but it's called uh, Nurse Let's Patient Die in Real Life Milgram Experiment. And uh, the Milgram Experiment, if you're not familiar with this, this is a, it's a really scary Experiment. There were there were actually two different experiments. The Milgram experiment was performed at Yale University, and it was basically the, uh, studying the willingness of participants to obey an authority figure. That was the whole purpose of it. Now, uh, the other experiment that I'm going to mention today is often referred to as the Stanford Prison Study, and it was kind of made famous in a book called The Lucifer Effect, and that's a real fitting name for it, and I'll, maybe I'll be able to get into that if time allows today. But the article uh, that just came out that David uh, just put up over there at Daily Anarchist, uh, the one uh, Nurse Let's Patients, Nurse Let's Patient Die in a Real-Life Milgram Experiment. What actually happened, and, and I'd, I'd really like for you to read that. Follow the link and read uh, Davi's article, because it's a really good article, as all of Davi's articles are. But anyway, a, a rough idea of what happened. So there's a nurse at a nursing home, and the nursing home had a policy that um, only trained medical professionals do things like uh, administer CPR and this kind of thing. The the uh, the basically what they're calling a nurse here is really just uh, you know almost like a babysitter for the elderly people in the in the nursing home. So according to company policy, she was not permitted to uh, supply life-saving maneuvers like CPR and that kind of thing. And this is all because of, you know, liability and, and things like this. So they had a, a patient that was, uh, that was having some kind of problem. I don't know if it was cardiac arrest or whatever. And um, this, this nurse, uh, and I'm sure she probably wasn't a registered nurse, so we're using the term nurse loosely here and not in its official capacity. But the nurse had gone through all the procedures that she was supposed to to contact the people uh, you know, there at the nursing home to try to get professionals uh, uh, 
to, to get there to help. And part of the procedure was to call 911 and let them know and so that they could scramble a, a EMT crew and that kind of thing. So, uh, so she calls 911. And the 911 operator tells her, okay, you're going to need to, you know, uh, perform CPR on this person to keep them alive. And she said, no, sorry, I, I can't do that. That's against company policy. And there's this discussion back and forth, and it's all recorded, and it's really creepy to listen to. But um, the, the 911 operator is practically begging her to please, you, you can save this person's life with just applying the CPR uh, techniques, and you can keep this person alive. And she's saying, I can't. It's against our policy. And so uh, the 911 operator appeals to authority by saying, look, I'll take the responsibility. I know it's against your policy, but I'll take the responsibility. You don't have to worry about getting in trouble with your employer. I'll take the responsibility. And she so was still afraid to apply life-saving procedures, simple, very simple life-saving procedures, because the greater authority of her boss had told her, this is company policy. You don't break company policy. Now, and, and this comes right to the discussion, and David does a wonderful job of bringing this into the discussion of the Milgram experiment, uh, experiment because the whole point of the Milgram experiment was to test people's ability to think for themselves and refuse uh, the authority of of somebody who was telling them to do something or telling them not to do something, and it goes in both directions, uh, that that violates you know ethics. And um, well, let me give you a, a rundown real quick of what the Milgram experiment uh, was. What they did was they had a bunch of volunteers at the university, and they divided the volunteers into two groups. One group they called teachers, and the other group they called uh, students. And, of course, they were all students but you know, of the university, but they, they divided the group into teachers and students. And then they, had the, uh, they told the teachers, okay, this is your role in the experiment. Um, you're going to be behind a one-way glass so that the pupil can't see you, so that the student can't see you. And uh, that we're going to have an authority figure here with you, and you have to, um, you know, the authority will be in charge. If anything goes wrong, it'll be all in the responsibility of the authority. Nothing that happens, you, you won't be held responsible for anything, no matter what. No matter how good or bad this happens, you're not going to be held responsible. The authority is the one responsible for all the decision-making. You just do exactly as you're told. And anything good or bad that happens, it will be the responsibility of the authority. So you're not going to get blamed if anything goes bad. Now, the reason they gave him that disclaimer was because part of the experiment was to attach electrodes to the student and then have the student perform certain um, activities. And if they did it right, then nothing would happen. They would just be told, you are correct. But if they did it wrong, the teacher was told, to uh, give them a shock through those electrodes. And they had this elaborate panel set up so that they could see all the, you know, the Frankenstein type, all that kind of stuff was there. And they had dials and they had gauges and all these kinds of things. So the teacher believed that they were applying uh, a, a shock as a negative reinforcement every time the, the student got a wrong answer. So the idea was, will negative reinforcement work to teach people stuff? Is negative reinforcement a good way to t for a good learning mechanism, in other words? 
And so that's what the teacher thought that they were testing. And the teacher was told, now you have to follow the exact orders of the authority figure because the authority figure knows how much electricity you can give uh, without hurting this person. Because, you know, sadly to say, this big machine in front of you can actually, actually electrocute and kill the student if it's not done correctly. So you need to trust the authority and do exactly as you're told. And then they would tell the, the, the teacher, if you give this amount here, and they would show them how much, if you give this amount or more, you risk killing the student. And then they would show them an, a, a higher amount. If you give them this amount of electricity, you'll kill them for sure. So you have to obey the, uh, the authority. Well, then you have the students in the, in the thing, and they're sitting in this chair uh, behind this wall with a one-way glass so they can't see the teacher, and they're given a series of tasks to do, and they have these electrodes hooked to them, and they're sitting there, and they're doing their task, but the difference is the students never got electrocuted. They, they understood this to begin with. They knew that it, the real test was on the... Uh, teachers to see how much the teachers would how far the teachers would go to obey the authority figure so the student never got shocked at all but the student would pretend like they were getting shocked at the right times so it would coordinate with what the teacher thought they were doing to give the the student the shocks so um so the uh the the um, the authority figure would apply the question or the task to the to the student. The student would fail, and the authority figure would tell the teacher, "Okay, shock them." And then the authority then the teacher would shock them to the amount that the authority figure said. And in the course of this test, they slowly brought on more and more electricity until the point of where the teachers actually believed they were applying lethal. Uh, electrical shocks to the students and the students would respond by going completely limp and falling over like they were dead and the teachers continued to f obey the authority right to the point of in their minds and what it appeared to them right to the point of killing the students and the reason they were able to do this on a very high percentage of the of the teacher group very high percentage followed the, the commands of the authority figure all the way to the point of where they thought they were killing the students. They followed through with it. And the point of this was that um, there's this real scary human tendency to follow authority figures, even to the point of doing things you know are morally wrong, even to the point of harming other people all the way to the point of death, just to obey the authority figure if... All responsibility is removed from the actions of, the, of that person. And that's the key, removing the responsibility and having an authority over you telling you what to do. Now, this has all kinds of implications. And Davi, in this article, um, does a really good job in talking about the Milgram experiment and how this nurse allowed her patient to lay there and die because she had to follow rules and not administer CPR. Now, I'm going to break for a moment, and when I get back, I'm going to talk some more about the Milgram experiment, the Lucifer effect, and Davi's other article from a year or two ago uh, about, the, about the book, The Lucifer Effect. I'll be right back. Stick with me. From June 17th through June 23rd of this year, 
The Free State Project will celebrate its 10th annual Porcupine Freedom Festival, Porkfest. My wife Cindy and I plan on attending, and Bad Quaker staff members Hannah and Matt are trying to raise enough money to attend, as they did last year. Considering fuel, campground fees, and Porkfest tickets, we estimate it will cost BadQuaker.com a little over $2,000 for Cindy and I to attend. For Matt and Hannah to attend, it should cost an additional $700. If you'd like to take part in sending the Bad Quaker crew to Porkfest 10, here's how you can do it. Go to BadQuaker.com. You can click on the Donate button on the right-hand side of the page. You can give us bitcoins with our bitcoin number located right below the Donate button. Or you can use our Amazon button to shop at Amazon. If you'd like to support BadQuaker.com on a regular basis, you can use the link to our forum and become a supporting member for only $4 a month or just $25 a year. Thanks, folks. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the break. So I was talking about David Barker and... um, and and his article on the Milgram experiment, and I also was talking about uh, his article on the book, the Lucifer Effect. Now, uh, let me explain to you what the Lucifer Effect is based on. The it's it's the Stanford Prison Study is the actual study that the that the book is about. But the book is also about, if you recall, a few years back there was a big scandal because uh, U.S. soldiers were put in charge of an Iraqi prison. And it was a horrible prison with a nasty, nasty reputation. It was where Saddam Hussein had taken people for all kinds of weird tortures and and killed people. And the prison had a horrible reputation uh, among the Iraqis. And U.S. government officials decided to uh, take that prison, keep it named by its old name, so it still continued to strike fear in the hearts of the Iraqi people. And uh, and they took um, soldiers who were hmm, how do you put this? They were not upper. They were not. Uh, they were not uh, high achievers. Let's say it that way. They t- they took the less desirable soldiers that really didn't have all that good of a, you know, they weren't they weren't movers and shakers. They weren't really moving up in the ranks and doing you know fantastic jobs. They were so so soldiers. And with almost no training, and with almost no instructions, and with almost no uh, direction of any kind, they basically put them in charge of this hideous prison and um, began sending them mostly Iraqi uh, political prisoners that had been arrested by the U.S. forces. And they were basically just told, keep them in control. Keep them in a state of of uh, complete, you know, don't make them always feel like uh, like they're never going to be out of here, that they have to cooperate, they have no will of their own, uh, try to break their will. But there was no actual instructions to say, you know, do this mean thing, do that mean thing, or don't do this, or don't do that. You know, there was no, there was no clear instruction g- given to these underachiever military uh, folks that were put in charge of the prison. Now, this is the exact situation that took place in the Stanford Prison Study. In the Stanford Prison Study, what the, uh, what the exper- experimenters did was they took uh, just a, a group of regular uh, students from Stanford University, and first they tested them, made sure they were all emotionally stable and everything, and they all were, and then they divided them randomly into prisoners 
and guards. And they dressed all, and they, and they did this in the basement of one of the uh, buildings there at Stanford. So it was all kind of, you know, gloomy and basement-like anyway. And they put all of the prisoners in similarly uh, colored smocks and no other clothing, just the, sh- just the smock. And um, they referred to them only by number and not by name. Then they took the guards in the experiment and they uh, outfitted them with, uh, you know, with billy clubs, you know, nightsticks, with um, uniforms and with uh, uh, mirrored glasses, you know, so that they so that they no one could see their eyes. And this gives a certain uh, authority effect, you see. Now, they didn't give the, uh, any of the students any real instructions other than to tell the guards to keep the prisoners in control and you know keep them uh in a subservient fashion so that they so that they didn't um you know so that they they couldn't feel so they would always feel like they were in prison that was the only instructions there was no real training there was nothing like this and within just a couple of days this experiment got so out of control that um that the researchers had to shut it down and and the main researcher in this the guy that wrote the book the lucifer effect was so harmed personally by this because he didn't realize that he allowed himself to get sucked into the experiment and they began doing cruel sadistic things to the students who were playing the part of prisoners and um and he, he the 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 researcher himself got sucked into this and and after a few days into it he realized this is harming me. This is changing me. This is causing me to be sadistic and, and evil. And so he shut the experiment down, and he was so ashamed of it that he didn't publish all of his results of the of the prison study until just a couple of years ago when he wrote this book, The Lucifer Effect, and related it to that prison and the, the way the way that the uh, the American troops treated the prisoners in that prison. And so Davy Barker. Uh, did an article on this, like I say, a couple years ago, or, or about a year ago, I suppose, called The Lucifer Effect, Ron Paul and the Stanford Prison Experiment. And again, I'll put links to, to that article in today's show notes as well. And you really need to read that because Davi said some things uh, that, you know, you might have heard me saying a lot of the same things right around the same time frame. The difference is when Davi wrote this article, he didn't. He had never heard of me, and I had never heard of him. I we found each other through Davi writing this article over at uh, the Daily Anarchist, and I found that, and I went, "Wow, this is great!" And I contacted Davi, and we became friends after that. But that's the article that sparked the friendship between Davi and I. So um, again, I want you to get over there, click the the link from BadQuaker.com, and follow it over to the Daily Anarchist to read that link to read that article by Davi Barker called. The Lucifer Effect, Ron Paul, and the Stanford Prison Experiment. Now, Davi arrives to, he, he really lays this story out really well. And he arrives at the conclusion that had Ron Paul been elected in 2012, that he would have been subjected to those same overwhelming pressures as those described in the Lucifer Effect. Because it's all about authority. It's about having power, having authority, and what that does to you, and not just like one person or two people, what that does to any human to have the kind of authority that uh, that a president has. It doesn't matter how you start out. 
When you're given that kind of authority, that kind of power, and no responsibility for your actions, and and a lot of people say, well, the president, there's a, a series of checks and balances in the American government. No, get your head out of high school and get your head into reality. That's all a lie. There is no series of checks and balances. First off, the Constitution, the idea of checks and balances didn't come into uh, the American uh, language until well after several presidencies in. I can't remember exactly where that came in, but it was one of the chief justices that made up that garbage. But it's not there. It's, just, it's an imaginary thing, this idea that the, that the Supreme Court checks the Congress and Congress checks the president. It doesn't work. It's never worked. If it did work, we wouldn't have gotten into the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the so-called Civil War. None of those things would have happened because there would have been a checks and balances, and the aggression of the United States president wouldn't have been so obvious. But that's kind of beside the point. I didn't mean to go off in that direction. The point is that when you take a person, and you, t- you let's just take uh, Barack Obama. You know, Barack Obama talked about uh, all about peace and how we couldn't be aggressing on these other nations and we needed to, to not be doing these horrible wars and so forth. And then he comes into power, and what's he do? He blatantly does exactly the same thing that Bush was doing, except more of it. He attacks more countries that Bush would have never dared bother. He sends more drones to kill more people. He kills American citizens that Bush never would have dared to try. So does that make Bush an angel? No. Bush was, you know, Bush was horrible. Bush was worse than Bill Clinton. Bush went into it saying how he was going to be a kindler, gentler uh, type of of, uh, of Republican and a and a and a and a more you know a kinder type of a conservative, and then right away he goes in and attacks a country that didn't attack us, and the two countries that didn't attack us. Um, this is a little bit controversial, but Afghanistan never the, the government of Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan, specifically the political party called the Taliban, never raised their finger against the United States government or its people or or anybody on this continent. Uh, a small group of terrorists off in the woods, if you believe, if you believe the government's story, a small group of terrorists off in the in the mountains of Afghanistan were guilty if you believe the government's story. But that doesn't mean the government of Afghanistan was guilty or the people of Afghanistan was guilty. And it certainly didn't mean Saddam Hussein was guilty. But anyway, that's kind of beside the point. My point being that it doesn't matter how you, what kind of a person you are when you become president. Taking on that power and that authority without, um, without being personally, personally responsible for your actions that creates this lucifer effect and and what is that lucifer effect well that's a really interesting choice of words because i've talked before about this word lucifer and and where it comes from in the bible and where it comes from in theology and how uh, most christians in my opinion get the idea of lucifer entirely wrong totally backwards I don't believe there is a creature created, a single individual entity created by God called Lucifer, and I don't believe you can support that through arguments in the Bible. Um, if, you, if you go to the main scriptures that tell us about this horrible devil, this Lucifer, then what you have is the description of a being 
created by God that uh, was perfect in all of its ways, had a, a musical voice, was beautiful to look at, and was placed in a garden called Eden. And that, that perfect being with this beautiful voice that could make music with his voice and was beautiful to gaze upon and was in, uh, entirely uncorrupted had one flaw in him, and that is that he desired to place himself as God, make a God of himself and place him on the throne of God, place himself on the throne of God as God. And, and how did he do that? Well, I'll tell you how he did that. If you go over to Genesis and you read the story of Adam and Eve, and what do you see? Uh, take away everything you've been taught about Adam and Eve. Take away about everything that you've been taught about, um, you know, the tree and the fruit of the tree and all that. And you just read the actual words that are there. And there's no apple involved. There's no sex involved. All that crap is given to us by churches and theologians and governments, and it's all nonsense. None of that had anything to do with apples or pomegranates or sex. None of it did. Read the story for yourself. The tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the fruit of the tree was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam chose to take it on himself, even though he was forbidden from having it. That is law. That is judging right from wrong, good from evil. That is justice. You see, man was given law naturally through our creation process. Just like butterflies have a law. Just like squirrels have a law. Just like ants have a law. Humans were given a law. And at some point in time, humans said, I'll make laws myself and I'll inflict them upon all other human beings. And all humans will have to obey man's laws instead of nature's laws. And when he did that, when humans did that, all of us, Adam, all of us, when we did that, we took on the mantle of God. We made a God of men. We made mankind a God. We made, we took, we took Lucifer, the light bearer, the beautiful, the lovely, with the beautiful voice. We took him and we placed him on the seat, on the throne, to judge. We made him the lawgiver. Because what is a God if not a lawgiver? And what is a lawgiver if not a God? And that, my friends, is Lucifer. He's you and I. He's every time we imagine that mankind can be law, that mankind can produce justice, that we can abandon that natural law that we were born with and we can create to ourselves a new law. When we do that, we place ourselves on the throne and we kick God off. And that is the Lucifer effect. And to think that one man, one individual man, can rise up and we can give him a title like king or president or judge, your honor, your majesty, and we can call one human being by a name like that. That is the very act of blasphemy. That is making yourself a new God. That is having another God and abandoning that which we were 
made by, created by. That's the Lucifer effect. And if Ron Paul or anyone else is elected as president, that is the very pinnacle of the Lucifer effect in civilization as we know it today. And this is the essence of what government is. This is the, this is the idea of the state. And if, that, if everything I said is correct, now I'm going to use a word that I very rarely talk about, if the creation of the state through believing that man has the ability to make law, through heightening, through taking Lucifer, the light bearer, that beautiful creation that was in the Garden of Eden and was without flaw, beautiful and, and uh, magnificent to hear, if we take that creature and we make a god of it, it is the opposite of Christ. You see, Jesus in the Bible was taken up by the devil and he was shown all the empires of the earth through all time, all the governments. And it was said to him, all these things are mine. That's what the devil said. All these things are mine and I can give them to you if you will just accept me as your God. And Jesus said, nope, not going to do it, buddy. Not going to touch it. Now, you think about this for a second. How could the devil tempt Jesus with all the kingdoms and the empires and the governments of the world? How could the devil offer that to Jesus as a temptation if it didn't already belong to the devil? It was the devil's. It was Lucifer's. And who runs all the empires and the kingdoms and the governments of the world? We do. We do. You see, mankind was Lucifer in the Garden of Eden. Was Lucifer when he said to himself, I'll be the God. I'll be the lawgiver. I will take myself up on high and I will make to myself a law and I will be justice. When man did that, and when other men ag agree to it, you see, you can't be a god if nobody recognizes you as a god. You have to have worshipers. So all of the rest of us, when we support and when we believe in the legitimacy of Lucifer, he becomes the opposite of Christ. He becomes the Antichrist. Government. Belief in the state. Believing that the state is legitimate is the opposite of Jesus and is the opposite of Christ. The state is the Antichrist. And it wants to control all commerce. And it wants to control every aspect of your life. And it wants to assign you a number. And it wants to control all money. And it wants to say who can come and who can go. Where you can travel. It wants to hand out permission slips for you to carry certain objects or possess certain substances. He wants to take a portion of everything you own and everything you earn. And when you die, he wants a percentage of that as well. It wants your undying loyalty. It wants you to sacrifice your life and the lives of your children to this God, the state, the Antichrist, Lucifer. Folks, when I get back from this break, we'll talk a little bit more.
One caviar sound on a cat food budget? Creamy Radio Audio by the Freedom Fiends has great free tips so you can sound like a pro without spending like one. The most powerful form of human communication is one person speaking to another. But if people have to suffer through your sound, they'll change the channel and miss your message. With articles on microphones, preamps, recorders, mastering, recording remotely over the internet, doing a podcast, even getting a show on actual radio, the Freedom Fiends show you what they use and where to get it. Whether you're a talk show host, voiceover artist, podcaster, evangelist, or just want to record your loved ones for the ages, at Creamy Radio Audio, the Freedom Fiends will help you make the most of your sound. Creamy Radio Audio will help you speak to the world with sound that will make people want to keep listening. Check out CreamyRadioAudio.com. That's CreamyRadioAudio.com. Power corrupts. Power corrupts. But power attracts the corrupt and attracts the corruptible. Davi Barker, in his article, The Lucifer Effect, Ron Paul and the Stanford Prison Experiment, comes to the conclusion that had Ron Paul been elected, he would have been subjected to the same overwhelming pressures as those described in the book, The Lucifer Effect. Now, Davi and no one else can predict to what level that Ron Paul would have been affected by that. Maybe he would have been affected the same way other people have been affected, maybe less, maybe more. There's no way of knowing. We can all theorize. We can All the great men worshipers out there who bow at the idol of Ron Paul can say, oh, he would never be affected by this power. Well, I disagree. I think anybody would be affected by that power. So much so that, like I said in the last segment, even Jesus would not take that power. If Jesus would not accept the ring of power, then why would we think Ron Paul deserves it? Why would Ron Paul think he deserves it. And I know the argument goes, oh, no, he wasn't really trying to become president. He just wanted to get the message out and get the, really? But what would have happened if by some freak of nature he would have got elected? Would he have immediately said, thanks, no thanks, I'm not going to do this? Or would he said, I can use this power for good. I can use this authority and this power for good. I think he would have said that, and then he would have used that power. And what is that power? Power corrupts. But power attracts corruption, and power attracts the corruptible. And so, who is attracted to a job like the presidency? You know, I talked before about the Barney and Andy effect with with police, you know, with police work. And I talked about how self-selection bias, among other things, self-selection bias does, uh, it, it interacts with police. And what it, the way it works is you have two types of people who would want to become a, a cop. You have one kind of a person who genuinely is a good person and they want to help they want to make their community safer. They want to help the weak. They want to help the poor. They want to help, you know, uh, they want to fight crime. They want to do good things for their community. 
And you have this other kind of person who, yeah, it'd be kind of nice to be able to do good, but really they just like authority. They like to be in charge. They're that bully back in school that used to push people around because they could. And very often that kind of person becomes a cop. Now, I know this will upset some cops to hear that. Too bad. It's the truth. There are two kinds of people that are attracted to police work. There are the Barneys and there are the Andes. From, this is from the old uh, TV show. The Barneys, deep down inside, have a flaw. They love authority. They love to be in charge. They love to have people. They love to talk loud and have people look at them with, with uh, adoring eyes. Or they're just as happy to have those same people look at them in fear. They, uh, they get off on that. And then there's the Andes. The ones who are kind and gentle, and they, and they are logical, and they try to use reason, and they try to you know, judge things fairly, and they try to do a good job and help their community. But self-selection bias interacts in police forces and does this continually, and it has for the last 250 years since we've had police. Now, people will say, well, hey, what would we do without police? Well, we existed for a very long time without police. Police are new in the human experience. The idea that you can take one small group of people, costume them in a special costume, and a hat is very prominent in this, by the way, and, uh, and give them some type of a badge or some type of a, some type of a uh, medal to wear on their chest that shows authority and that we're supposed to be awed by them. And, uh, and arm them in a way that the regular people are not allowed to be armed and allow them certain behaviors that the rest of us are not allowed to behave like. Give them that authority and then take away most, if not all, of their responsibility. And you've created a situation where self-selection bias is guaranteed. And you say, well, but if we didn't have that, criminals would run amok. Criminals would be everywhere. There'd be dead bodies in the streets. Oh, it'd be horrible. Um, no, actually, that's not true. There are all kinds of historical cases that you can point to where that simply doesn't happen. But there's also the hard history that you can look at and prove that, in fact, the existence of a class of people above all the other people around, taking away some or all of their responsibility for their actions creates a criminal class that's far worse than anything that they might be um, set up to fight against. So, you know, I did a whole series on, on police and, and why the acceptance of the idea of having police, the very acceptance of that, guarantees a police, a police state at some point in time. But why is this? And again, and I went through this in the series, but I just want to touch it here for a moment. It's because of self-selection bias. It's because within a police force, when you have this structure where you've already accepted this idea of having using aggression to control people with, when you've decided that you're going to give special rights to one small group of people and allow them to use aggression and to live on stolen money to accomplish this task of controlling other people, when you set that up, you set up a situation that guarantees that self-selection bias will reward the evil Barneys and punish 
or at least not reward the Andes. The Andes will be driven into lesser minor positions and the Barneys will be given more and more authority. And as more and more Barneys get hired as police and as more and more Barneys come into uh, supervisory positions and then managerial positions and then eventually uh, you know, top-level police positions, the Andes will have less and less and less influence until eventually there will be no Andes, there will only be Barneys. And at that point, or even before that point, you have a police state. And we're moving towards that very rapidly in the United States right now. And even if you compare it to other totalitarian uh, countries who have existed within my lifetime, Compare it to the worst days in China, to the worst days of the Soviet Union, to the worst days of East Germany. And today in the United States, in most cases, you have, as a citizen, you have less freedom from the police state today in the United States than you had in most of China during the worst of its Mao years and in the worst of the Soviet Union during the Stalin years and in the worst of East Germany. It's worse today in the United States for the average citizen. If you, if you consider travel restrictions, if you consider what you're allowed to own, how you're allowed to trade, how you're allowed to set up a business, all these things considered. Now, I know we're given layers and layers of lies by the media, and all the patriots are pounding their chests saying, oh, no, no, uh, you don't know, and you just hate America, and all that kind of nonsense, and that's all that is. It's just brainwashed nonsense. The fact is, the United States is in a police state and has been for a while. And those other police states failed, and the United States government will fail because of the same reasons they failed. Power corrupts, and power attracts corruption, and power attracts the corruptible. So, yes, it goes two directions. Davi was correct in his conclusion. Ron Paul would have, had he been elected by some freak accident of nature, had Ron Paul been elected, he would have been subjected to the exact same Lucifer effect, um, overwhelming pressures that everyone else that, faces, that, that is elected into a position like that or that is given that kind of authority has to deal with. It's unnatural. It's inhuman. It is not something that humans should ever desire or give, or give to another human. So then the question has to be asked, uh, thinking of this Milgram experiment and thinking of the, uh, of the Stanford experiment, the Lucifer effects experiment, um, are we dealing with human nature or are we dealing with expressions of learned behavior? Because if this is all within human nature, we've got a serious problem on our hands. I don't think it's human nature. I think it's 100% learned behavior. Now, most things you can't, uh, you can't really divide a hard line and say, this is, this is nature, this is nurture, this is nature, this is nurture. Most things are a combination of the two. But I really believe that the results you see from the Milgram experiment and this Lucifer effect that we see from the prison experiment... I really believe that both of these are contrary to human nature, that we are taught them through nurture, through after, after we're born, and how we interact with other humans. And I believe this based on several different things, but here's just one, one way of looking at it. The state, as we know it today, and I've talked about this uh, many times before, the state as we know it today was born in Jericho about 9,000 B.C., about 11,000 years ago.
That is the very first physical evidence we have of, of where we know that there was a state. It was, a, it was um, farming. If, if you read um, The Art of Not Being Governed, um, you, you find out that a state cannot exist where there, without the overproduction of grains. A state cannot exist without the overproduction of grains because a state always, in all times, requires slaves. And slaves can only be fed with the overproduction of grain. In other, in other uh, food supply situations, you don't have the oversupply of something neutral like grains that, that you can carry around in bulk and move in bulk and that you can make uh, a food product out of that is sustainable to the masses. So you have to have the overproduction of grain to have slaves, and you have to have slaves to have a state. Now, we look at Jericho, and we see this one magical moment that comes into, uh, into being at about 9,000 B.C. We have the overproduction of grain, the appearance of slaves, and the appearance of a tower and a skirt wall that means, and this was on a mound, uh, the mound in Jericho. And from the size of this um, little tower and skirt wall, only about somewhere between 20 and 40 people could be actually housed and protected in there. So this was not this was not a fortress to save or guard the people. This was a fortress to guard and save a very small elite, a very small group of people. That's why we say 9000 BC in Jericho was the oldest place that we know that had all the components for the state to exist. It had the overproduction of grain which resulted in taxation we have the existence of slaves, and we have the existence of the elite of government. And in all likelihood, this was a religious-based uh, group uh, worshiping the god Tammuz. And I've gone into that before, and I don't really have time for it today. But I believe that since the state did not start spontaneously around the world, we don't, we, the, next, the next evidence we have of the state after the birth in Jericho, the very next state that we know of was, um, was at the delta of the Fertile Crescent uh, in um, Ur, in the city of Ur. And that was 3,000 years after the birth of Jericho. And then the state starts popping up in river valleys all around the world, but, but it had already existed for 3,000 years in Jericho. 3,000 years a walled city existed. Who did they need walls to defend against if there's no other state? They needed the walls to defend against the farmers that surrounded them and that were, that were taxed to support their lifestyle. You see? So the state, believing in the state, believing in authority, obeying authority, and behaving the way that we see the behavior in the Milgram experiment and in the Lucifer effect experiments, those aspects are not a part of human nature. I, I believe they're not a part of human nature because if they were, we would have seen this springing up throughout history, but it doesn't. It springs up and it spreads like a disease. First, it's in Jericho. Next, it's the next major valley over in the, in the uh, Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Then next, it pops up in the Indus Valley. Next, it's, it's in uh, uh, the... Um, Nile River Valley, and then the Yangtze, and it pops up in places like this and spreads like chickenpox. That's what the state did. 
Well, if it was an aspect of human nature, it would have sprang up spontaneously everywhere there's humans. But there were humans all over northern Europe at the same time, and there was no state. There were Europe's all there were there were civilizations popping up all over uh, uh, northern Asia and all over Africa and even in Australia, and there was no state. There were civilizations, there were water-based civilizations popping up in, in uh, Polynesia and um, throughout Eastern Africa, and there was no state. And then, all of a sudden, the state appears and spreads like a disease. So, I conclude that the results of the Milgram experiment and the results of the Lucifer effect experiments do not express human nature. They express that which we have been taught. We, it, they express nurture. And so now let me ask a hard question. Parents, how would your children react to unethical orders from an authority figure? I'm thinking specifically, you know, not long ago there was a case where I believe this was in either Arizona or New Mexico. I'm thinking Arizona, but I could be wrong. There was a case where uh, one little girl in school um, had Tylenol in her lunchbox or her purse. I, th I, think, I believe it was in her purse. And there was another little girl there who was having really bad period cramps. And so she, the one girl shared her Tylenol with the other girl. Or maybe even she refused to share her Tylenol and the other girl got mad at her and lied and said she did share her Tylenol. And I believe that was the way it actually happened. I believe one girl ratted out the other because she didn't share her Tylenol, if I recall the, the actual results of that. And so we have this little girl being taken into the principal's office and literally strip-searched over whether or not she shared Tylenol with another little girl. She was strip-searched over Tylenol. Now, let me ask you this question. How would your child react to an unethical order from an authority figure like, take your clothes off and let me see if you have any Tylenol? How would your child react to that? Well, I don't know. That's a rough question, isn't it? My daughter was detained at a homecoming once. Uh, I have two daughters. Uh, the older daughter, Kai, that's regularly on the show with me here. And then I have another daughter. And the younger daughter was at the school homecoming. And, you know, it's just a homecoming dance, and like every other school has it, except the school district had decided that too many kids were leaving the, home, uh, the homecoming dance and going off doing naughty things. And we can't have the children doing naughty things. So they passed a rule. They said, once the children are at the homecoming after midnight, they can't leave. They can't leave the homecoming after midnight. They have to stay until in the morning. And they actually had police at the homecoming dance to enforce this. So my daughter was at the homecoming, and it was a few minutes after midnight, and she was getting tired of it, and it was, she decided that she would leave, and there were several other kids with her, and they decided they were going to leave. And so they started to walk out, and the cops stopped her. And they said, no, you can't leave. And she said... You can't keep me captive. I'm not a dog. And I don't know that she used those exact words, but that's basically what she said to them. You can't keep me here against my will. And they said, oh, yes, we can. We have cops right here. Look at them. 
Here they are. And the vice principal, oh, the vice principal, oh, oh, the great and mighty vice principal, oh, he whom we all must bow before, because we all know what scum vice principals are. The vice principal is saying, no, you cannot. You cannot leave. Well, then I want to call my dad. No, you cannot call your dad. You cannot call anyone. You can't leave here, and you can't call anyone. And my daughter said, really? Beep, 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 beep. And I'm on the phone with her. And, then, and she's saying, Dad, they won't let me leave. And I'm like, what are you talking about they won't let you leave? And she said, we're here at school at the homecoming dance. And because it's a couple minutes after midnight, they want me to stay here all night. And, Dad, I don't want to stay here all night. Now, what would your child do in this situation? Would she bow to authority? Would she say, okay, I'll be your captive? Well, that particular daughter reacted by calling me and then handing the phone to the principal. And I said, if I have to come down there, you're going to have bigger troubles than a 16-year-old girl. Now, you better get out of her way and let her leave because if I have to get out of bed, get dressed, and come down there, you're going to have a real problem on your hands, vice principal. And he backed down. But had this happened with my other daughter, Kai, I think she would have just laughed and pushed the clown out of the way and walked on through. And if that would have meant a beat down from the cops, that's probably how it would have happened. But she would have forced that issue because that's just her nature. My son is a little bit different nature. He would have uh, tried to avoid conflict as much as possible. He would have said, oh, I'm sorry. Then he would have went to the back door and slipped out through the emergency exit or climbed up on the roof and slipped down the side. He would have not stayed. But he would have also not made a conflict out of it because that's just his peaceful nature. But how would your child react? How would your child react if the vice principal was to say, take your clothes off, I want to see if you have any Tylenol? Or in a, another case of a high school situation where the vice principal actually felt up every single girl student coming into the dance because she was afraid that some of those evil little students might be wearing thong underwear. Now that actually happened. A vice principal actually stopped and physically groped every girl coming into uh, one of the dances. I can't remember where this school took place or where this took place and what school, but it was a big thing in the headlines not long ago that the, te that the vice principal actually groped each female student as she came into the dance to see if that dirty little beast was wearing thong underwear, because we can't allow that in our Puritan schools, can we? That, you see, that is the Milgram experiment taken right, right to its logical end. It's authority being put into the hands of scumbags who desire that kind of authority. And what's the solution? Well, one solution is to not have your kids in public school. That's solution number one. But not everybody can afford that solution. Not everyone can take the risks of jail and having your kids taken away and all the other risks involved. But we can learn from this anyway. We can nurture our children in peaceful ways. We can teach our children that you don't have to bow to authority. You can figure out a different way to go around it. In my three examples with my kids, my oldest daughter, Kai, will have a tendency just to lower her head and charge. Well, that's good in some cases, but it's not always good. Sometimes it produces very painful results. My, old, my younger daughter's response was to, hey, 
I know a guy who can get me out of here. I know a guy who's bigger and tougher than all these cops and vice principals combined. I know a guy <laughs> who will lower his head and just bash right through. And so she called me. But my son would have taken a different route altogether. And so you have to teach your kids uh, to how to use their own personality and their own wisdom and their own um, resources and solve problems like this without bowing to the boot of authority while remaining independent and free. Folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks. Goodbye. Thank you.